Can I say this? The podcast by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. Hello everyone. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Uh, this is our first in-person talk and we've got Jane Fenton with us. Uh, thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Um, and it's going to be a fun night, we hope, a fun talk. I can't do that. <laughs> I, I hope, I hope. <laughs> uh, you'll get to ask questions at the end. Uh, for the people watching on Teams, there's a Q&A function at the uh, top right corner of the screen where you can ask your questions uh, throughout the talk and then at the end uh, we'll make sure to ask them to Jane if there's time for it. Uh, but yeah, without for, uh, any further ado, I'll leave you with Jane Fenton. Well, thanks very much, first of all, for the invite. Um, and just to tell you a little bit about myself, I'm actually a social work lecturer here. Um, and social work and community education and education, that's the school that I come from, is maybe has a bit of a reputation for not being the best for free speech and for having a bit of a censorious climate, or at least a, a quite defined political orientation. And I would say that that reputation is probably quite well deserved. So in some ways I'm a bit of an outlier, not entirely alone, but, but I do kind of stand out, I think. Um, so I've written quite a lot and published a couple of textbooks and articles, mainly on social work, also probably from quite a kind of lefty political angle. But more recently, I've become concerned about issues of free speech and free debate, and I've been worried about that. So I wrote an article called You Can't Say That with the social work professor, who is also somebody who's very much a supporter of free speech. And we got that published. And I've also written an article for Community Care, which is a social care magazine in the UK, um, just about the importance of free speech. And of course, that was a bit of a risk because that's a social work audience. And what actually happened, the response to that, were a lot of comments and I got unsolicited emails from social work students and social work academics who said, you know, thank God people are starting to say these things because we're not allowed to say them in the classroom. So um, that's why I'm here, because this is my, the, my new area of scholarship almost. This is what I'm interested in now. So if we could, now it's very hard to judge how to do this today. So I thought I'll just do a little bit of history. You probably all know it, um, but I thought I would just start there anyway. So John Stuart Mill, okay, one of the great liberal thinkers. You all know about him, yes? Yes, I thought so. Do I even need to say that? Even put up a picture of it. Um, and, and it's just, I suppose, the main thing. Um, I'm, I'm trying desperately to get an article published at the moment called Reclaiming Liberal Values for Social Work Education and I'm struggling. Um, it could be because it's crap, but I haven't struggled this way before when I've written my lefty stuff. So, well, who knows? Maybe, maybe it's a crap anyway. But, um, so, yeah, liberal principles and John Stuart Mill's, of course, John Stuart Mill, one of the, one of the main people. And his sort of three, the three things he said that are important about free speech. You have to listen to other people's points of view because one, they may be right and you may be wrong. And two, they may be wrong, but it's good for you to have to re-articulate your arguments so that they're not getting dusty and, and sitting there on the shelf. And But the most likely one is that you both probably have partial truth. And let's face it, that's what we're trying to get at. Trying to get at the idea that there is a real truth out there and how close can we get to that? 
Okay, so um, moving on from him, I don't know if you've heard of Jonathan Rausch. He wrote a book called Kindly Inquisitors, which I would absolutely, it's a little thin book, I'd absolutely recommend you to read. And he talks in that book about how knowledge is produced in liberal democracies. So we're not told in Western liberal democracies what, the, what to think. You know, there's nobody saying in a totalitarian way, here's the truth. What we do is we produce scholarship and we put it there into the public realm for everybody to judge and to rip apart and to criticise. And then somebody else comes in with something else and the same happens there. And that happens in our institutions, especially in our universities. So um, when, you, when you think of it, it's absolutely fantastic because ideas are then, it's the checking of everybody, um, by everybody. And, and the ideas around things like we all have biases, we all have confirmation bias. The only way to deal with that is to expose that to other people who have different biases. So knowledge produ production works in that way. Um, and what happens then is ideas either stand up to that kind of public scrutiny or don't and they're debunked really. So, and that's what we, that's how we decide in a liberal democratic way what gets taught, what becomes the canon of knowledge. So my example there is creationism, for example, has been pretty much debunked and evolution has been pretty much held up as knowledge. So creationism isn't taught in a university. People are free to believe that and talk about it, but it's not part of the canon of knowledge that we teach, whereas evolution is. So what Jonathan Rauch says is that you have this settled body of knowledge, but round the outskirts of a kind of frenzy and a debate and a discussion and all of that happening in our institutions, happening in our classrooms. And that's the way that we advance knowledge. And that depends on things like anybody who's written an article knows that you put it in, it gets peer reviewed and you get a good kick in sometimes if it's crap. Um, or people say, OK, yeah, but there's this part. And that's that frenzy of contested knowledge around the outside of the settled body. And it's really precious when you think about totalitarian regimes where people are taught what to think um, and, and told what to think. And you can't depart from that um, or you'll be punished. So we need to hang on to that. And, and Jonathan Rauch added a bit to his kind of most recent edition of this book about how minority civil rights depend on that system. And he talks about um, being a gay man growing up in the 60s and, um, you know, real oppression, gay people having very few rights um, and how he went on marches and got involved in the discussion. He said if there, if there had been hate speech laws then, they would have been told to shut up because the government had a moral objection to homosexuality. So, but, but because we have this system, they were able to say, well, you see when you say things like homosexual men and predators, well, we can actually prove with data and evidence that's not true. And we can and gradually chipping away until it became part of the settled body of knowledge that, well, that's fine. As Helen Pluckrow says, some people are gay, get over it. You know, it's, so so um, this is why I suppose it's quite galling sometimes that we hear that we can't 
um, criticise things in case minority people feel um, unsafe or whatever, when actually that system has helped so many people achieve equality, women as well. Um, so yeah, so that book is really worth reading. And, and so, so that's the background of why we do things in the way we do in universities. And then, you know, we have enshrined in law that academics, especially this part, are allowed to do all of these things, hold cold opinions, um, you know, present controversial or unpopular points of view. Legal protection. And I'm sure Neil Finn spoke a bit about that when, when he talked to you. I was totally intimidated by the way the list of speakers you've had and then you've got me coming over from the school of education so, right so that wasn't a great start i was quite nervous when it heard that but anyway so 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 it's enshrined in law there we have a whole kind of history of why we do it this way and here we have it enshrined in law so for, yeah thank you so far so good fantastic now when i bring this up like in lots of debates do you know who that is Anybody know who that person? Yeah, it's Titania. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, she's brilliant. She's brilliant. So, so I thought, um, yeah, but when I brought this up with colleagues, for example, like having an argument just now or a debate about um, viewpoint diversity, and, and what always happens is, well, what about hate speech? So, what about hate speech? I'm sorry. Thank you. So, you know, under the equalities that we're not allowed to harass people and we're not allowed to violate people's dignity or create a hostile, degrading, humiliating, blah, blah, blah. Quite right. Okay. We don't want to be doing that. Um, but sometimes to engage in a controversial subject might be offensive to a person or to some people. And actually, sometimes that's too bad. Um, okay, you know that that's that's really too bad. And actually, the, if if that gets contested, the courts will decide on that. And academic freedom is balanced against that. Remember, we're allowed to bring up controversial things and talk about them. So, so it's not just the person's perception of offence that's important. There is an objective view that will be taken about. Was it? Were you intending to? harass somebody, I suppose would be the acid test. And that, um, but it's difficult and it's quite scary. And that was Merseyside Police with a huge banner outside of Tesco's or something saying to be being offensive is an offence. And of course, they're completely wrong and had to roll down the banner quickly and then slope off. And 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 then they said, I'm sorry, that was a misunderstanding. misunderstanding. So it wasn't, you were just totally 100% wrong. And um, but if the police were confused, the ones who are doing the arresting, um, then you know we can see that the people are confident about this. So, but anyway, so far still so good really that we can see in law then that we're allowed to bring up these things and discuss it. So, what is the problem? So, what's the problem? So, I've looked at students and at academic staff here, not my research but um, so there you'll see a study of a thousand students in the UK found that the majority favoured minority groups protection from offence as more important than free speech. 
with women being especially censorious. Now, that's really, really important, isn't it? Because um, we have there that kind of that idea again about the protection of minorities. Back to Jonathan Rauch saying you know, that that's wrong-headed because free speech helps minorities. But here you have we can't. It's it's not as important to discuss things as it is to protect people. Um, protect people from harm or from feeling unsafe, all these words. And then another study more recently, again looking at a similar thing, says 30% of students would choose a free speech position, for example, so under the third, invite controversial speakers onto campus, for example. A minimum of 20 would choose no platforming in the interest of emotional safety of minority groups. There's that thing again. But the interesting thing here that was a sort of malleable undecided group so if the students were given a paragraph talking about John Stuart Mill and the importance of free speech and all of that good stuff they were much more likely to um, to, to support free speech if they were given something about the emotional safety of minority groups then they were more likely to support that so I, I don't know what conclusion you can draw from that. There's something there, though, isn't there? You know, but it's important. If we are priming every class with trigger warnings and and talking about emotional safety, and about it, we're doing that. We're doing the equivalent of giving a paragraph. So that's something to think about. Anyway, I just wondered, you know, is what we've got there the tyranny of the consensus that that, that John Stuart Mill talked about? You know, that stultifying conformity. So the consensus is that minority groups have to be protected from speech harm, emotional harm. And it's that what we're seeing, <clears throat> the tyranny of that time and time again, so that the argument can't get past that. Because, well, do we want to make people feel unsafe? Well, of course we don't, but it's more complex than that. Um, so anyway, a 2020 huge study. Um, well, it was a huge, let me see. I made some notes about this. Um, it was a sample from a YouGov panel um, that academics already sort of fill in surveys and stuff. So academics didn't self-select into this study really because they were particularly interested in free speech. So it's quite an unbiased sample. There was 820 academics replied and that was a good sample well above what you would normally get. So quite robust research. Um, and what what the study found was that there's the breakdown. 53% identified as left wing, 35% centrist, 9% only as right of centre. Um, and people were asked as, if there's a hostile climate towards people with your political beliefs and a clear gradient. The more right leaning an academic was, the more they felt that the environment was hostile. And do you refrain from airing your views in teaching and research? Again, same gradient, right-leaning staff, yes, they do refrain from that. Um, and among right-leaning staff currently teaching in social sciences and humanities subjects, 50% say yes, we refrain from that. Just 18% of leave supporting faculty are comfortable expressing their views on Brexit. 18% of people who voted leave only can say that. Now, so that, uh, is this the chilling effect that we hear being talked about? Or is it just that people are, that it's mere perception? Because when I was having to have, that, when I was trying to have that argument in my school, 
another thing, not just what about heat speech gene, what about emotional safety for people, the other thing was this, this nonsense about um, uh, cancel culture and all that and the free speech crisis, it's rubbish, it's just stoked by right-wing bigots and it's not true. So you could say, well that's just their perception, it's probably not like that, you know, probably speak about Brexit or the council home and do a blogger. Right, so well, they looked at that as well. So if we could move on. The next set of questions they asked were, do, do you actually discriminate on political grounds? Do you discriminate against people? Um, and that quote there is from the, the, you know, from the paper that collegiality is an important part of academic wellness and social ostracism represent, represents an example of Mill's despotism of custom and action. So actually freezing somebody out, that, that is quite tyrannical and certainly chilling. Um, and 86% of those surveyed would be comfortable sitting next to a Remain supporter. That falls to just 54% would be happy to sit beside a Remain supporter, right? And only 37% would be happy to have lunch with someone um, who has gender critical views. Right, and they were, so they were, seeing, they were seeing that. So this isn't a perception of those who feel silenced. This is the silencers saying, yeah, we don't want to have lunch with these people. Um, so, one of those people. Yeah. so only one in eight supported dismissal campaigns, so just more questions, but they were given four hypothetical case studies and across the, all four, one in four academics supported at least one dismissal campaign. So that's a minority, but it's still powerful and that's in social sciences and humanities again. <coughs> Um, and there, were, there was widespread discrimination on political grounds. Things like academics were asked, would you mark down a grant application or something you were reviewing, like my bloody paper. <laughs> <laughs> right? So um, would, you, would you mark that down or be inclined to view it negatively if um, it had a certain political meaning? And people were saying, yes, quite widespread. A third of academics would seek to avoid hiring an only supporter. And we estimate that between a third and a half of those reviewing a grant bid would mark a lower to the right wing perspective. I've got these reports, they really are fantastic, on my reference slide if you want to follow them up. Some really good, really, really good information in that. Um, I don't know, just to give you an example of one of the case studies um, where academics said we would, this was the one that, that out of all of them, um, the academics said they would support somebody being dismissed for. And it was a research, if you had a colleague whose research showed that having a higher percentage of women and minorities correlates with lower performance in an agency. So imagine if somebody did that or looked at teams or whatever, and they found that, oh right, okay, the correlation's in that negative direction, right? So I want to um, publish that, get that out there, because it's, it's a thing. Um, so that was the one that uh, quite a number of academics have been to support that researcher being dismissed for even doing that research. Um, the, they were asked, and then they said, you know, what if then a small, so what if people signed an open letter, thousands of academics signed an open letter asking that this person get dismissed, would you sign it? And if there was a letter, 
um, saying no, this person shouldn't be dismissed, um, would you sign that one? So some people said they would, they would sign the dismissal one, some people, but not a lot, said they would sign the other one. And actually, there was just um, a huge amount of silence and self-censoring. Okay, can we, can we move on? <clears throat> so all of this exerts a chilling effect, and of course, as the, as the author said, even if that kind of political discrimination, maybe we're all inclined to do that, you know, <coughs> if, if you're reviewing a grant application or an article that's coming from different, maybe even with the best will in the world, we can't help being a bit biased. So even if that's across the spectrum, the political spectrum that that happens, when you have a university meetup with such a high proportion of left-leaning academics and such a low proportion of right-leaning academics, then there is a massive imbalance. Um, so, you know, and it's built in, it's built in because of that. Um, and I know, because of this debate that I'm involved in too, I know that, I, that academics have said to me, and I've said publicly, um, I feel like I can't speak out. I do keep parts of me hidden. Um, you know, and at, at one point in this, in this document, the author says that viewpoint diversity does exist. It's just hidden because people are too afraid to be really honest about it. God, and you go right back to Mill and think, oh no, this is a dreadful situation. <clears throat> yeah, and people who self-centre, however, are acting quite rationally because we can see the punishments that go on, that can go on. Okay, um, now this is just my last bit. And one of the things that I've been quite interested in and I was doing this in terms of social workers. I was looking at younger social work students and younger social workers actually, and looking at the difference in their politics to older. Um, and this was before I got interested really in the whole free speech thing. What, what I found from other scholarship from a little bit of research I did myself was that younger generations tended to be more right-wing economically than previous generations um, and more authoritarian previous generations, but better at diversity. That wasn't my, that last bit wasn't my research, but that's the research to see that. Um, so, so I was kind of interested in that political shift anyway. Generation Z or millennial? Gen Z. Right. Millennium. That's it. So, so the, 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 the Kaufman also looked then at what, where were the most intolerant academics coming from? The ones who were, who were the ones who were going to dismiss that person who did that research? No question asked. And there were two main predictors. One was identifying as a left-wing activist, not a surprise there. And the other predictor, significant, was age. So younger staff tended to be more supportive of restrictions. But the authors are not sure if that's a cohort effect or if that's just an age thing. Doesn't know. I'm wondering if you're sitting there thinking about your friends. And so that kind of fit a little bit with my finding about authoritarianism. You know, that is there a generational effect about intolerance and authoritarianism? I wonder. But I suppose it's the boomers who are going along with it, the deans of the schools, <laughs> the principals of the university, the boomers are, are 
not doing any better. Um, but, but a similar study that Kaufman did in the UK and Canada in the US again found that left activists and younger academics are the most illiberal. Um, and they found that millennial, millennial, millennial <laughs> academics are twice as intolerant as those in the age group of 55 to 64 in Britain, four times as intolerant in Canada, no, I agree. and close to three times intolerant as the US. Absolutely. Oh. And can you, So thanks very much for listening. I don't know what's to be done. 